Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, taxes, particularly income taxes, have a special role in U.S. media parlance, vitally important, but endlessly and instrumentally fungible. Quote-unquote taxpayer dollars are sacrosanct. We need to think very hard every time it comes up about how best to dedicate them. Do food stamps or public education make the cut? But then who contributes to this oh-so-important resource? Because at the same time, corporate media suggest the tax man is a villain who pretty much steals your hard-earned dollars. So, wink, wink, smart people avoid paying taxes as much as possible. The -the between-the-lines upshot seems to be the country runs on taxation, but if you have a lot to give, well, then you've earned the right to opt out. This weird, incoherent presentation is reaching some sort of flame-out with the New York Times much-anticipated and fought-for reporting on Donald Trump's tax returns and the political and pundit scramble to define or interpret them in ways that, it's seeming like, might indict Trump without calling into deep question the enabling system around him. That media's corporate owners and sponsors, protestations aside, endorse. It makes things a bit harder to parse for regular folks, but not impossible. We'll talk about takeaways from Trump's taxes with Steve Wamhoff. He's director of federal tax policy at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. Media response to the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden was, in the main, as aghast as much of the public response. Politico called it an epic moment of national shame, while CNN went straight for shit show. As Fair's Julie Holler noted, some were willing to pin the blame where it belonged on Trump, who interrupted, name-called, lied, and refused to follow any rules of debate or decorum. But some of the nation's most esteemed outlets clung desperately to the same absurd even-handedness that's gotten us into this show in the first place. Trump-Biden trade insults in debate full of crosstalk, was a Wall Street Journal headline. A subhead asserted, the two candidates constantly spoke over each other in exchanges more notable for rancor than policy nuance. A New York Times front page analysis took the same don't believe your lion eyes approach with the assessment that, quote, the first presidential debate between President Trump and Joseph Biden unraveled into an ugly melee Tuesday as Mr. Trump hectored and interrupted Mr. Biden nearly every time he spoke and the former vice president denounced the president as a clown and told him to shut up, close quote. In what it called a back and forth, the Times says, quote, the two major party nominees expressed a level of acrid contempt for each other unheard of in modern American politics, close quote. Moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News surprised everyone by including unannounced questions about climate change after activist demands, including from FAIR, the first time the topic has been broached in the last three presidential election cycles. But overall, as much as he could get a word in, Wallace stuck to a familiar debate script, framing many questions, for example, in such a way as to reinforce right-wing assumptions. 
For instance, on the question of protests over systemic racism and police violence, Wallace demanded of Biden, quote, Have you ever called the Democratic mayor of Portland or the Democratic governor of Oregon and said, hey, you got to stop this, bring in the National Guard, do whatever it takes, but you'd stop the days and months of violence in Portland, close quote. A question on the economy was prefaced, quote, the economy is, I think it's fair to say, recovering faster than expected from the shutdown, close quote. No doubt surprising many, including economists, and handing Trump a gift he scarcely deserved. Before the debate, Wallace claimed his intention was to be invisible, a misguided goal if ever there was one when confronting a candidate like Trump who offers more lies than facts. Afterwards, Wallace told a reporter, quote, I guess I didn't realize, and there was no way you could, hindsight being twenty twenty, that this was going to be the president's strategy, not just for the beginning of the debate, but the entire debate, close quote. It's true, it's easy to criticize after the fact, and it's hard not to feel some sympathy for anyone tasked with corralling Trump, particularly with few real tools to do so. But Trump's strategy was not impossible to predict. Holler points to a piece by reality show producer Mark Cronin in Columbia Journalism Review the day before the debate, noting, quote, the past four years have been a constant reinforcement of the idea that no matter what outrageous thing he says about or directly to someone, Trump will pay a small price compared with those he has disparaged, close quote. Note the passive construction. We aren't saying who might have a hand in creating that scenario. We would, of course, include journalists who fail to speak truth to power. Cronin correctly predicted that Trump would use tried-and-true reality show conflict techniques in the debate, from deny everything, admit nothing, and make counter-accusations, to extreme personal attacks, and culminating with breaking all the agreed-upon debate rules. To Cronin, quote, the televised debates are reality television, whether we want to admit it or not, and to pretend otherwise is to allow Trump to carry the day virtually unopposed, close quote. The only solution he offers is to encourage Biden to also make personal attacks that get under Trump's skin and make him look bad, kind of the advice you'd expect from a reality TV producer. Many pundits have suggested that the Commission on Presidential Debates allow moderators to cut the candidates' microphones, and the CPD has announced they'll be making some changes to the format to address the situation. But mic cutting is no solution, given a media obsessed with the appearance of even-handedness. According to one estimate, Trump was responsible for more than three-quarters of the interruptions in the debate. A committed corporate journalist would cringe at the idea of cutting off one candidate three times as much as the other, no matter the facts of the case. But clearly, cutting them off equally would be absurd. So, along with other media critics, Holler suggests the problem is not one that can be solved by new rules, because debates, from high school debate club to presidential debates, are predicated on certain assumptions, that each person has a right to be heard, that competing positions are put forth, that claims must be supported by logic and facts, and that debaters are not entitled to their own facts. When one candidate refuses to acknowledge or play by these rules, it's hard to see how any amount of tweaking by the CPD would change that. 
And when you're driven to consider that kind of accommodation because one candidate, who happens to be the sitting president, can't even be expected to meet the standards of respectful human interaction we ask of high school students and who deliberately seeds groundless doubt on the legitimacy of the election and issues directives to white supremacist groups from a national stage, the only reasonable thing for journalists to do is to not just call for an end to the debates, but to call for an end to the Trump presidency. In case you think that's never done, media critic Eric Bollard has reminded us recently editorial boards across the country, including USA Today and the Philadelphia Inquirer, called for Bill Clinton's resignation over his extramarital affair. If this is somehow less important, readers deserve to know why. A New York Times editorial today, October 1st, says canceling debates is a bad idea. Biden and Americans should show up for all of the remaining debates, the paper says, because, quote, Donald Trump is their president. They need to face him and the reckoning that he has brought on the republic, close quote. One might ask what the Times imagines we've been doing all this time, if not facing the freaking president and what he's brought on the republic, or if they imagine telling us to sit down and watch the nightmare unfold as our democratic duty represents their exhaustion of their own. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Donald Trump's tax returns have many wondering what they're doing wrong, ran one cheeky headline based on long-awaited reporting from The New York Times. The implication is that tax avoidance, if you can get away with it, is clever. And presumably you can still use the other side of your mouth to complain about public resources being underfunded. Corporate media don't really believe that people are completely confuzzled about why they can't get away with the same financial shenanigans as the rich and powerful. So where's the news you can actually use angle? As infuriating as it is to hear that while living a very wealthy lifestyle, Donald Trump paid just $750 in federal income tax in 2016 and 2017, and none at all in 10 of the previous 15 years, or that he wrote off $70,000 for his hair. Well, as infuriating as that is, if media leave the story at Trump being sketchy, we will have learned, and more importantly changed, nothing at all. What questions and avenues of inquiry could make more lasting, forward-looking use of this latest illustration of a sort of open secret of a system that provides one set of rules for the wealthy and another for the hoi polloi, and that allows for the draining of public coffers in the face of increasing public need? Steve Wemhoff is Director of Federal Tax Policy at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Steve Wemhoff. Thank you. Well, I wonder if you could perhaps start by suggesting in general terms how much of this is lamentable but legal, and we can talk about what to do about that, and how much of it is stuff that if you weren't the president, you might actually be in some kind of trouble for, or do we even know? That's a good question. And it's impossible to know for sure exactly what's happening. But it's clear that one of two things is going on. Either what Trump is doing is allowed by the law, and the law is really screwed up and needs to be changed, or 
Trump is breaking the law. And that shows that our enforcement of the law is deeply problematic. And that's a result of Congress defunding the IRS, gutting tax enforcement, and making it impossible for tax enforcement to keep up with people like Donald Trump. So one of, one of those things is happening, probably, quite possibly both of those things is happening. You know, Donald Trump is, he's using a lot of tax breaks and he's using a lot of special breaks and loopholes to avoid taxes. That is a thing that wealthy business people often do. But Donald Trump, nonetheless, is in a league of his own. He really is extremely aggressive. He really pushes the tax avoidance tactics to the very limit and quite possibly beyond the limit of what the law allows. Well, let me just draw you out a bit on that. I mean, folks are getting a little hung up on he lost money. So that means he's a failure and not the success that he says he is. But the use of losses to avoid tax um, is is evidently his thing and, and not his alone. I, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a primer on how that works on, on paper and then in reality. Right. So, you know, let's be clear about one thing. Donald Trump is a terrible business person. He <laughs> does have a lot of real losses, right? I mean, that, that's, that's just true, <laughs> right? But at the same time, Donald Trump is also a very wealthy person. He clearly has a lot of income. You know, when you see someone who lives like a billionaire for a decade and still gets away with not paying taxes in most years, you know that there's a problem with the system, right? Even if it is the case that he has a lot of ridiculous business investments that are complete failures and he does have a lot of losses. Now, it is the case that our tax rules have to have some kind of rule that recognize when a business person has a loss. I mean, the income tax is a tax on income. So if your business has losses and is not generated, generating income, then we're not going to tax you mm-hmm. on, on business income. So there are some sort of rules we have to have in place to recognize that people can deduct losses. But those rules sometimes are overly generous to business people who can manipulate the system. And there are some particular types of rules that are particularly generous to certain types of business investors. So for example, the big real estate investors have some special rules that make it easier for them to use losses more quickly and more easily than other types of business investors. And we know that's the thing he's used in the past. In the 90s, he had enormous losses from some of his real estate ventures. And the stuff that he's doing now may be a little bit different. Now he's involved in all these licensing schemes where he slaps his name on stakes or something. Right. He's in a lot of different lines of business. But nonetheless, it's true that what we see is a person who's clearly wealthy, has income. He has all kinds of income from these licensing schemes and from The Apprentice and, and whatnot but he's able to manipulate these rules and manipulate the losses from his other businesses to wipe out any tax liability that he would normally have. Well, and the real estate piece of that is a particular piece, and I know you just wrote about the 2017 tax bill with regard to using that kind of losses to offset gains thing, and there was a chance, there was an opportunity to kind of address that, and it was missed. Yeah. So there are all sorts of special breaks and loopholes for different types of investors, including real estate investors, that Republicans who were drafting the 2017 tax law decided not to touch. I mean, they could have used the opportunity to do a true tax reform. They could have made the tax system a lot simpler. They could have removed all kinds of loopholes and special breaks, but they did not do that. The law overall was a big giveaway to wealthy individuals and corporations. There were a few provisions in there that did raise some revenue by limiting some of the shenanigans that 
wealthy people can do to, to avoid taxes. And there were some limits on how losses could be used. Those limits, however, were suspended recently in March when Congress passed the CARES Act to respond to COVID-19 and the recession. The CARES Act, as it was negotiated, at some point, there were some provisions inserted into that law that waived these limits on losses. When you talk to people, it's not exactly clear whose idea that was. Was Mm -hmm. it someone in the White House who said, hey, let's put this thing in the bill that no one's paying attention to that will remove these limits on losses? It's It's unclear exactly. Yeah. But it does appear to be something that could help someone like Donald Trump, who wants to use his losses to offset his other income so that he can tell the IRS that he doesn't have any income and he shouldn't pay taxes. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to choose between the problem being Trump or the or the problem being the system he exploits. We could we could go for both of those, you know. Um, let, let me yeah, just I think add, it's both. you know, concretely, are there loopholes that we could we being Congress could close right now, could close tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Uh-huh. Um, it's not like everything's so murky and, you know, we don't really know where people are causing problems. There, there are things that folks could see that, that could, be, could be changed. Yeah, yeah. So I can, I can give you an example, right? In 1995, Trump reported a loss of over $900 million dollars. Afterwards, he was able to use that for many years to offset any income that he had from other sources, and he could tell the IRS he had no income and avoid paying taxes. So Trump, in 1995, reported this more than $900 million of losses. It's very unlikely that Trump actually invested $900 million of his own income, mm-hmm. right? He had losses on investments that he made with other people's money. And there's a general rule in the tax code that you're not going to be able to deduct the losses unless you actually put your own money into an investment. But there's a special exception for that when it's real estate. And Trump was able to exploit that. And that's the sort of thing where you look at that and say, well, why should we provide a special break for these big real estate investors like the Trumps and the Kushners? I mean, that's effectively providing a subsidy through the tax code for someone. And like of all the things we could subsidize, why would we subsidize that? It doesn't make any sense. Right. And that's, that's an example of something that we could repeal. Well, let me bring you back to something you touched on earlier in terms of systemic issues. You know, Willie Sutton said he robbed banks because that's where the money is, you know, and uh, I understand mm-hmm. it that the top 1% are responsible for the vast majority of unpaid taxes. But the IRS audits the super rich less than they do working class or low income people because, and I'll just paraphrase their position, it's really hard, you guys. If we don't allow enforcement, if we don't fund enforcement, then all this talk about rules is almost just deflection. Exactly. There's a two parts of this. You have to have rules that work, and then you have to enforce the rules. And this is just really its mind-boggling, frankly, that Republicans in Congress have decided that, you know, as part of their, I guess what you'd call anti-government ethos, right. they've decided to cut funding for the IRS. Now, you know, you can argue a lot about cutting different types of government spending, but cutting the IRS is particularly bizarre because it means you get much less revenue to pay for the rest of the government, right? So the Congressional Budget Office recently put out a report about this saying that if we just spent another $40 billion on IRS tax enforcement, that would actually end up raising another 
$103 billion that we would actually get by increasing our enforcement. So by not doing it, it's like Congress is sort of like just walking away from more than $60 billion, but not providing that funding, right? And that was an example that the Congressional Budget Office gave. And their report goes into the fact that, you know, from 2010 through 2018, Congress cut the IRS budget 20%, basically, and um, that resulted in a staff reduction of 22%, and, and, and that resulted in a reduction of the tax enforcement staff by 30%. I mean, why would you cut the people who are collecting the revenue? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, we're not, we're not saving money by cutting the IRS. We're losing a lot of money. But that's what's happening. And over the years, one thing that's happened is the rate of audits has fallen for people at all income groups, but it's fallen more rapidly for the high-income folks. It just doesn't make sense. Like you said, if you're going to go where the money is, you would look at the, the wealthiest people. But, but that's not what we're doing because the wealthiest people are, in fact, they, they are complicated. When you're someone like Donald Trump, you can do so many complicated schemes that you can use to avoid taxes. It does require having very capable IRS enforcement staff on hand to be able to do that stuff. But instead, what we see is a shift to IRS enforcement to do what's easier. And what's easier? Well, that's going after the low-income people who claim the earned income tax credit. And the earned income tax credit has so many complicated rules around it that a lot of people just accidentally make a mistake and they can get caught up by the IRS on that. And that's what the IRS seems to be shifting towards, focusing on that. It seems like completely unfair, completely nonsensical, and it doesn't even make any sense. You know, these, these IRS budgets, they're not saving us money, they're losing money, right? So none of it makes any sense. But one of the real world consequences of that is, you know, someone like Donald Trump is probably getting by with things that he should not get by with. And we know for a fact that, for example, there's this dispute over this enormous tax refund of more than $70 million that the IRS is still looking at and has been since 2011. Why that is taking so long, who knows, but it could very well have something to do with the fact that the IRS is just deeply underfunded right now and understaffed. Well, and you have to look at, while you look at what they don't do, you have to look at what does happen because, you know, it's not just that, yeah, the shrinking the government means, of course, shrinking its ability to collect taxes, but also billionaires aren't just exploiting these loopholes. They have the political power to also create them. So it's it's right. coming. It's not just like laxity, you know. Um, right, yeah. right. And, and Donald, Donald Trump is not a passive bystander. Right. When these tax rules are created, I mean, we we have recordings of him testifying before Congress, defending tax shelters and saying that, you know, you should put tax shelters back in, in the tax code. Donald Trump was all about that, you know, back in the 90s. And, and he and the rest of the real estate industry were successful in getting Congress to put some tax shelters back into the tax code. So you, you can't say that Donald Trump is just doing whatever the law allows. Right. Donald Trump was part of why this is in the law. Right. Reporters are following up on the question of who owns Trump's debt, this $420 million in personal liability debt, and that is important to know, to put it mildly. But it just reminds me of the vastly different role that debt plays in different lives. You know, in, in Donald Trump's case, as we've been saying, it didn't seem to prevent him from virtually anything, whereas we know right. that lives are derailed and people are are, are politically cowed, frankly, you know, or, or, or silenced because they have debt and debt is presented as a moral failing that should prevent you from moving forward in life. And I guess I just really want to say, you know, what we think of as fiscal policy, it's so much more than fiscal policy, both for the country and also for individuals. It has a you know, myriad implications for people's lives. 
Yeah. You know, it's sort of like there are two sets of rules, one for really wealthy people like Donald Trump and one for the rest of us. And that comes to the tax rules. But I guess it also includes like the way we think about that in almost moral terms. That right. There is sort of a different set of rules for someone like Donald Trump. He's being clever, but you you didn't pay off your student loan. So how should you expect to advance in life? You know, it's, it's very right. frustrating. And I guess finally, it, it takes me back to the stories we tell about it. And that has a lot to do with media, with media and taxes. There's kind of a personal yeah. side around April 15th, you know, like uh, it gets kind of yeah. personal and individual. And then the rest of the time, tax cuts and other things are like political stories or beltway stories. And the connection, the direct connection to, to folks' lives becomes less visible. And I just wonder, finally, on this story, which is a huge story, and it's just getting started, that's just the first installment of the Times reporting, but are there things you would be hoping that media would do or not do to kind of make this story and these questions legible for people so that we can be more prepared to push for change? I do want to say the New York Times has done a great job with this, and it's it's actually incredible. Long-awaited, um, and no one, Trump didn't want it to happen. We know that. Right. I think and this is a story that uh, we can tell a lot about the Trump administration. We do have some norms and traditions in this country, and we don't want to just allow Trump to just destroy those, right? And we do have this norm now of, presidents releasing their tax returns, presidential candidates releasing their tax returns. And, you know, I think we should continue to expect that. I, I, I don't think Trump's refusal to release a tax return should be considered the new norm. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that kind of transparency is really important. And I think that I think that people will demand that, too. I mean, given what we've learned, like when we've had after decades and decades of presidents and presidential candidates releasing their tax returns, one guy refused to do so. And it became very apparent why he refused to do so as soon as these revelations came out. So, you know, my hope is that we'll kind of get back to that norm immediately after he's gone, and we'll stick with it. We've been speaking with Steve Wamhoff, Director of Federal Tax Policy at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. You can find their work online at itep.org. Steve Wamhoff, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.